Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, everyone. Hello and welcome back to One Broken Mom. As some of you know, I actually tackle um, the topic of domestic violence on this show quite a bit, and I've been an advocate for raising awareness about it. Having experienced emotional and financial abuse myself, I can attest to how debilitating and confusing it is to live through these circumstances. It's hard for victims at times to get help from friends and family members because many abusers are extremely skilled at maintaining the status quo and hiding their assaults from other people. And there's also this mind your own business attitude in our culture that allows abusers to continue their behaviors because people think it's far better to remain neutral. However, in extremely violent situations, neutrality can actually be a death sentence for some. There are many resources for people in a domestic violence situation, but there's also a large amount of uncertainty. And as we know from human behavior, we tend to choose the devil we know over the one we don't. And so when we don't understand how these resources actually work and what happens when we tap into them, we're apt to not use them at all. And that's why today I have with me Jenny Ware. She's the Home Safe Program Director from New Beginnings, a Seattle area organization with a mission to empower survivors of domestic violence and to raise community awareness and actions to end it. So welcome to the show today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. So I'm asking you to do something really big right off the top, which is to define the term domestic violence and whether or not there are any thresholds for um, for when people need to or should um, heavily consider using resources outside of their friend and family network in order to get help with their situation, so can you can you kind of jump in with that? Sure. Well, the basic definition of domestic violence is a pattern of using power and control over an intimate partner, and that can include emotional abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse financial abuse, sexual abuse, um, abuse of using children against your partner. I mean, there are a lot of different um, aspects of domestic violence. So a lot of people think of it primarily as physical abuse, but at New Beginnings, we do not have a threshold of physical abuse. We consider all these um, tactics of dominating and using power and control over one's partner as domestic violence. Yeah, and you know, it's funny that, um, not funny, that's a terrible mm-hmm. word that I just threw in there, but what's interesting, let me put that in there, is I think the, uh, there, I, I wanted you to define it because a lot of people have grown up with this understanding that it is just physical. 
and that some of the other behaviors that are related to a domestic violence situation are just, you know, uh, the norm, you know, financial abuse is one of those that it took me a long time to, to acknowledge that what my situation had been was financially abusive because I viewed it as just quote challenging or, you know, uh, the push and pull dynamic between two people arguing over the checkbook and how to pay the bills and, you know, and not, you know, uh, kind of dismissing some of the other insidious activities that were going on in terms of, you know, taking money and hiding money and stuff like that. Um, and then also the psychological abuse, because we've heard people say, well, you know, he didn't hit you, you know, so how big of a deal is it that, you know, he's just a bully or he's mean to you. And, um, and so people really limit and downplay their own experiences, even though they're, they're detrimental. Yes, definitely. And we certainly see a minimization by a lot of those um, experiencing domestic violence on minimizing the impact of the emotional abuse until they really get support and are acknowledged and are validated that that's very hurtful. And we have a lot of survivors say that scars from physical abuse heal faster than the impact of emotional and psychological abuse. And that that can be buried deep within one's psyche and soul, you know, for years and years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And re-triggering over and over and over again. Um, That's why I think, you know, to me, this is personally an important conversation because, you know, our friends mean well, but when that, when that uh, idea perpetuates, even, and they don't, nobody means to do it from a negative standpoint. Um, You know, I just spoke with somebody where, you know, cultural taboos prevent people from feeling like they can come forward with their abuses and Mm -hmm. things like that, that our friends and family may not be really truly one of the better resources that we have. Have available to us to get ourselves out of these situations, um, you know, because they too also minimize it or don't understand okay. it if they haven't gone through it or or experiencing some form of it themselves even oh. and have minimized and downplayed it as, um, you know, not a big deal or you know whatever it is. Um, and so that's why you know I, I'm wanting to have this conversation with you is to say the resources to be able to actually get you through this may have to come outside of your friends and family network in order to truly get the help and the support that you, you might need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen on social media in 2020, which is when you and I are recording, this is actually in August. Um, sometimes people will listen to these episodes at some mm-hmm. point in the future. So we don't know. So time capsule moment, we're in, we're in the summer of COVID. And um, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, as a, as an argument against stay at home orders that there's been upticks in violence, you know, in the homes, you know, child abuse, domestic violence situations, and that these services like what new beginnings have, have become um, in higher in demand. Have you actually seen anything? And this is not a political statement. I'm just curious. Right. Have you actually seen this within your organization this summer that it's unusually uh, that it's different from any other time that we've been dealing with? Well, most of that uptick, if there is an uptick, would be seen through our 24-hour helpline. And that's not um, a part of the agency that I directly work with. But what I have heard from those answering the helpline and from our community program director is that during the first months of COVID, we actually had a decrease in calls. And we actually had a decrease, somewhat of a decrease uh, of survivors reaching out for services in our community program. But as the months passed, um, there now has been an uptick and more and more survivors are reaching out. So we attribute some of that initial decrease to sometimes survivors not having a safe way to reach out 
and to call, not having any privacy and um, just not having that autonomy that they might have had before where they could reach out for services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, right. Because people may not be going to work and exactly. having, they're sitting in their office or their cubicle and yeah. able to, to jump online or make a phone call. Interesting. What have you guys had to do to adapt for COVID? Um, because I could imagine, you know, um, people assuming that there's nobody there to help them because, you know, right. the resources have been cut back. Right. Well, first of all, I'll say that there was no disruption or interruption in our 24-hour helpline, which is the gateway to our services at New Beginnings and also just a service unto itself for support and resources and validation and safety planning. And so that has been available throughout all the time of COVID. Um, We did pivot to doing more remote service um, advocacy. And luckily, New Beginnings about three years ago had put the technology into place um, that all the advocates did have laptops and work cell phones and we're doing some mobile advocacy, which necessitates um, working remotely. So we had some of that infrastructure in place, which was very helpful. So our community program has pretty much um, pivoted to remote services, but still very robust services and what they offer in terms of remote support groups, individual advocacy, a legal clinic, legal advocacy, parenting support, and mental health services also remotely. And then our home safe program, which is the program where I work, which offers short-term housing. We have a facility where we house 17 households for up to six months and then follow them for about a year. Usually out in the community, we help with rental assistance for an apartment and continued advocacy. We've pivoted some of those services to more remote services, but we do still do some in person because we do have a facility full of families. So we adapted by doing more of a skeleton staffing pattern and staggered staffing um, and just making sure that we take care of the essentials that we need to face to face and then do the rest uh, remotely. Mm-hmm. So it, it's been an adjustment. I'll have to say, you know, I'm and, and definitely, I'll speak to especially, I think, the kids in our facility program, um, Bridge, really miss the in-person services because we had so much going on for kids. You know, art groups, a visiting therapy dog, um, field trips, sometimes, you know, just a lot of activities and in-person connection with our youth and family advocates. So I, that has been a challenging adjustment I think a lot of the adult survivors have adjusted um, better than we might have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I can speak to that a little bit. Um, you know, I've talked with many people over the course of the of this last year, and you know, trauma survivors. You know, this is kind of par for the course, to be honest. I mean, I, I've seen that to where um, you know the the deeper some of the wounding in the back, the more prepared you are for these extreme circumstances, mm-hmm. and you know, and not to trivialize it in any way, shape, or form, right. but um, you know, my 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 people on the show with like complex post traumatic stress disorder from you know repeated childhood traumas, right, are just kind of like yeah, yeah. This I was made for this, you know, kind of a mm-hmm. thing. So. 
Um, and I can imagine with kids. Now, I, I, you know, I'd wanted to ask about the demographics. What, what is the demographic profile of the families and the people that uh, New Beginning serves here in, this, in the Seattle area? Well, the demographics are representative of the community and um, differ a little bit with our community program and our home safe housing program. Our community program uh, serves survivors who aren't necessarily homeless or looking for shelter. They might have other, they might still be living with their abusive partner or might just have more financial resources and more options or, um, you know, or they might be homeless and seeking shelter as well. Our home safe program, the great majority of participants are, um, you know, it's a wide range of ages, but I'd say the majority are in their 20s and 30s. We serve a very racially and culturally diverse um, population. Right now at Home Safe, we have approximately 75% are um, Black or other people of color in our program. And we have a large um, refugee immigration population that we serve. So we have a wide range of different um, countries represented and those who seek services at home safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, when I, um, just for the listeners and the viewers on here, I had applied to be on the board for new beginnings and with, had to withdraw because there'll be some changes coming up here in my life in the next several months. Um, and I remember um, new beginnings really strongly focused on diversifying the board itself yes. in order to be able to address the diversity in the population that um, the organization is actually serving. And, and right. Yeah. right. And, and that's right. very important. Right. Yeah. And I will say at Home Safe, we do serve survivors of any gender identity, but the great majority are um, female. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. You know, it's interesting listening here because I remember having to relocate and get a new place with my kids and it was financially, it was a chore. I ended up having to have family members help out because the cost of being able to get a new place is in many times a deterrent for people. And it was a, it was a, it wasn't what kept me in my situation, but I was put in a place where I had no choice that I had to leave. But I was pretty hopeless for a while of how I was actually going to end up doing that. I mean, I really just didn't even know about that. Um, can you talk to that? Because I think that's a pretty important thing that you just touched on that I want to bring that up because money is a control factor. And sometimes, and in my situation, that was supposed to be a way of keeping me in line, you know? Um, so I'd like, can you, can yeah. you elaborate on that, on what, what kind of help there may be for people that, if that's their issue? Sure. Um, and luckily we live in a community with a lot of different resources for survivors of domestic violence and different um, agencies have different financial resources to help with either deposit or move and move in cost and first month's rent if somebody needs to move. Um, I will speak to Home Safe since that's the program where I work. And so some people definitely have an image of what a shelter is um, that is not at all in alignment with what Home Safe is. So I'd like to just address that because mm -hmm. somebody does need to get away from a their abusive partner and is hesitant to seek shelter. Um, there are resources that are very trauma-informed, very supportive. 
HomeSafe has individual apartments that are very, very um, you know, individually decorated too. They don't look institutional. We have stays of up to six months. Um, we allow pets if pets are a barrier to leaving a relationship because often that is a factor. We uh, provide wraparound, quite holistic, trauma-informed services. Everybody that moves in has a team of advocates, a survivor advocate, a housing advocate, a youth and family advocate, if children are involved, access to legal advocacy and also mental health support. So an array of services. And we really just walk along with survivors on their journey. And so we don't have really preconceived ideas of what somebody should do in the future. Um, and we just are very survivor-focused, survivor-centered, um, follow survivors' leads, and just offer whatever sort of support we can, emotional, safety planning, financial support, logistical support. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, it, I wonder, you know, are there anybody that you've ever ran into or would think of that would disqualify them and say that they're, you know, that the service isn't for them, that maybe, you know, they wouldn't qualify or they themselves don't see them receiving it. And what I kind of mean is like socioeconomic differences. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think, I think sometimes the image of, you know, organizations like this is that they are only directed towards lower income support Mm -hmm. and services and that anybody else with any, you know, modern amount of means, this isn't for them. I, it, you know, that feels like that's a myth that might be worth talking to. Right, right. And for shelter programs and housing programs, usually um, the survivors are low income. And sometimes for some programs, they do need to be considered low income to get into transitional housing, for example. But sometimes that's just a temporary status also. Somebody might have had a lot more financial means, but then leaving the relationship really shifted the financial landscape for them. Or they moved from another country where they had, um, you know, professional success and some monetary stability and then moved to to the United States and having to start over. And then that combined with leaving a relationship Um, makes them a little bit more vulnerable financially at that time. I do want to say that our community-based program serves survivors of all different economic backgrounds, and some survivors certainly would be considered middle class or upper middle class as well. Um, And I, I do want to mention that in our community program, We have individual advocacy, we have support groups, which I think I mentioned in legal advocacy. And the approach to the advocacy is the same. No, advocates are not going to act like they know what's right for the survivor to do in their life. They're just gonna be there as a sounding board, as a resource, as somebody who has knowledge about domestic violence and can share safety planning information and suggestions and options that they've seen work, um, but definitely respect what the survivor decides because we know that survivors know their own lives the best and no advocate or outside um, support person is gonna know what's right for them. Right, I mean, the journey is fraught with danger anyways, yes. and you know we can only push ourselves as much as we're comfortable with being mm-hmm. able to, to do that for sure. Um, and, you'd, and you'd mentioned before the threshold 
And I do want to really emphasize that for our 24-hour helpline, there is absolutely no threshold to who should feel comfortable calling the helpline. Um, a caller doesn't have to give their real name. They don't have to share any information they don't want to. They can call on a regular basis for a few years before they've decided what decision they're going to make in their life. And there's no pressure to leave a relationship or to take certain legal action because we know that's not a solution for a lot of survivors or a helpful solution. So it's really a, the 24-hour helpline in domestic violence agencies is really a service unto itself and very accessible and also accessible for family members, for, um, you know, an employer who th who's concerned that maybe one of her employees is dealing with domestic violence. So it's really a community resource for so many people. And we get literally thousands and thousands of phone calls every year. Wow. That's, I mean, it's yes. sad, but it's, a, it's yeah. nice that it's available there. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the overall like landscape when it comes to domestic violence survivor support? You know, it, it, um, you've mentioned that New Beginnings has a couple of options in there. I've seen where people look like they're shelter only. Um, you know, you talked about legal services, housing services, you know, um, what and then I think about like there's you you know new beginnings here in the Seattle area and then there's like the national domestic helpline. I mean, what's the difference between all of the parts and pieces that you know that are there and available for people that are dealing with a domestic violence situation? Well, we have a number of local domestic violence programs that are the good resources for somebody who wants in-person services or that um, connection within the community. The national helpline is more just to give information about different parts of the country and be able to connect um, survivors to different, more local programs. We're very lucky though that we have some major organizations within Seattle King County that offer shelter, uh, rapid rehousing, housing assistance. Some offer transitional housing, some uh, offer um, community support groups, legal advocacy, just like New Beginnings does. We have a number of culturally specific domestic violence agencies within Seattle King County that works with um, specific populations of survivors. A lot of our agencies do some co-advocacy um, and we also share financial resources when possible to support a survivor um, who needs a lot of financial assistance. So there are a lot of different services available. Mm -hmm. For, and, and are you guys linked together? I mean, is there a, a connection with it? Because I would yeah. wonder, like, what's the difference between calling you and calling another organization and whether or not, you know, uh, something gets dropped in between that right. process there? Right. Well, it's kind of perfect timing that you ask that because right now there's a number of domestic violence agencies in Seattle King County that have 24-hour helplines. And so it can be, I think there are four, um, that can be confusing to survivors because there are all these different numbers. But a long time dream that the community, domestic violence community has had to have a more centralized helpline is actually coming to fruition. There's finally the funding for it. There's the will to do it. Um, there's buy-in by all the community programs. And New Beginnings is actually going to host that central helpline. 
and it will be a whole program unto itself. It will have a different name. It will have a separate number, hopefully a really easy to remember number. And that, hopefully it will be up and running in the, um, near the beginning of 2021. The process has been delayed a bit because of COVID, um, but it is moving along. And so when that is up and running, a survivor would just need to call that centralized helpline and that the person, there will be a lot of skilled advocates answering the phone 24 hours. There will be a lot of different language capabilities. There will be texting capability, um, video conferencing, et cetera. And then the survivor that wants particular services will be referred to the area or the program that makes the most sense for them. And there will be some form of a warm handoff and also follow-up if a ball is dropped because sometimes it is, um, you know, for whatever reason. And so there will be more of a central oversight basically into the services that survivors um, get. And, and we see it as really, really a positive resource and a positive change for survivors in the community. And it's something that the community has talked about for about 15 or 20 years, but there's never been at the same time the financial ability to do it within Seattle King County and the kind of buy-in by all the agencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's good. Now, and I, I, I'm glad you clarified um, because the difference between at the national level and calling is at the national level is going to funnel you to your local, you know, the communities and um, the organizations within your local community. And so then being able to have them all coalesce together, again, is we're talking about removing a barrier, right? When somebody looks up domestic violence and they see four different options and they don't know the difference between them or why they would call one or the other. Again, that, that decision-making process means people tend to default to, well, I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to go there. Um, what happens when someone calls a 24-hour helpline? Is this like a 911 call or, you know, what is it like for, you know, that experience? Like if I'm in a situation and I call that number, you know, you know I would, I might be concerned. I'm not, I'm going to speak from my own experience. I know other people might view this differently, but, you know, have I got a ball rolling that is going to snowball out of control? I, you know, because I just feel the anxiety building up in me because it's scary to leave a situation. It's terrifying and frightening, no matter how badly you know you need to go, there's still the fear of getting that going there. So what's it like if somebody decides to just call that number and get started? Right. The phone will be answered in person by a person, um, a skilled advocate, a knowledgeable advocate about domestic violence that will just follow the lead of the caller, ask what, why the caller's calling and just be um, a resource is somebody who can listen, who can validate, um, let them know they're not alone, um, listen, do some safety planning, sharing different resources, talking about different options that might be out there. But also, again, I want to stress not telling a survivor what they should or should not do. So it's totally in control of the caller. They can cut the call short after five minutes or 10 minutes, or they can talk 30 minutes. Or, and, and as I mentioned before, they could call on a regular basis and actually um, you know, just expand what it is they want to get from that service. Uh, and it's, it's, they're not, names are not logged. Um, I mean, except in our database, which somebody can give a fake name, you know, 
and we certainly don't follow up if, um, and we don't, uh, if somebody wants to receive community advocacy program services, for example, we'll do a screening, a brief screening and let them know that a community advocate will be calling them back within a certain period of time. But, and, but we do ask, what is a safe number to call? If somebody else answers the phone, what would you like me to say? Um, and really do some safety planning so that it never endangers the person who's calling, um, you know, unintendedly or whatever. Mm -hmm. Is there an option for walking in? Well, no, you just, okay. uh, not. It's the whole gateway is through the helpline. Okay. And pre-COVID, we try not to, um, we don't, publicize our address because mm -hmm. of safety and confidentiality reasons. And the staffing, you know, is there to meet with people. Pre-COVID, um, the advocates would meet in person with survivors, either in the office or out in the community, wherever the survivor felt safe to meet. So did remote advocacy and in-office advocacy. Support groups would be in the office. Um, but the address would just not be posted so somebody wouldn't just sh show up on the door. No. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, obviously there's yeah. the safety issues of having right. your abuser following you there. Um, but then I didn't know about for people that, um, uh, you know, don't feel like they want to call again for the safety reasons and stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. there are, there are some programs, the Salvation Army um, has a, in Seattle has a community advocacy program that I, I believe people can come directly there and there will be an advocate on site. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, I, this might not be something that some people think about, um, but uh, if you are a professional and you have an office, um, you know, we talk about this sometimes in my organization, like your human resources department um, could be possibly your first road to, to something like this if you're really concerned about it. I'm just suggesting that for some people there. It, of course, it's hard to bring this up, um, you know, with with people, which is why the the 24 hour helpline where you can do this anonymously. Exactly. As you talk about your experience, um, you know, for a lot of people, again, they minimize, they minimize their own experience. It took me a while to use the word abuse with my experience. You know, you got to, because of shame, you mm -hmm. know, embarrassment, yeah. you know, whatever that comes along with, you know, realizing that you've right. been controlled like that for so long and, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. And it will not be minimized by advocates answering the helpline. Yeah, right. And I and I that's why again I uh, go back to the top of this interview here. Why I do appreciate these services because, you know, our friends mean well and our family means well, but they they may not be the most uh, objective, no. you know, means to be able to really have you look at your situation for what it is compassionately. Right. And to to help you navigate, um, you know, I, I feel like at times, you know, people around me didn't understand it at a depth that I wanted them to, and they kind of downplayed the whole thing is not a big deal. Um, so, and, and well-intended family and friends can f get invested in the outcome or feel that they need to give advice or that there's a certain path that is the best for the survivor. And so I think it helps a lot to have that more of that objectivity by reaching out to an advocate who's not going to have that personal investment and who is just really going to be listening to the particulars of that person on the other end of the helpline and um, not try to pressure for any sort of particular outcome. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like, don't go, you know, not encouraging, like, give it another chance. You know, right. maybe you guys need to go right. to therapy together, yeah. do it for the kids, you know, uh, whatever the, uh, the, the practice rehearsed statements that we're, you know, we're used to seeing and hearing um, from people. Um, the, I, I, and I, I don't want to overdo this, um, but I do think this is important because, you know, about 50% of women, when they get divorced, end up in poverty. And there's a large number of moms and children living in poverty. And it usually happens after separations like this. And so, you know, again, I appreciate the importance of understanding how much financial abuse and emotional abuse actually plays into all of this, because the separation process itself can become a different abusive tactic for abusers. So maybe you were being hit or psychologically abused, but now the legal system is being used to abuse you. The banking accounts are being used to abuse you, you know, denying you the financial stability you need to defend yourself Mm -hmm. and divorce or remove yourself from these situations start to get used on you and then you're the one that ends up in poverty at the end of it or homeless or you know paying off credit card bills I mean I can again I'm raising my hand here I know that feeling and it sucks and um and so you know you don't have to do that though when you've got if you have a willingness or ability to be able to come to a place like new beginnings right like because the legal resources what what do the legal resources look like for somebody that's trying to get out of these situations mm-hmm. yeah we have a legal advocate uh, well we have two legal advocates and a legal clinic and they can share with survivors what the options are some survivors Um, choose to try to get a protection order. Some decide that would only increase the danger of their situation. So there's no pressure for taking a particular legal um, road and, you know, can help. um, We have a lot of survivors who need assistance with immigration help, and we have a close relationship with the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project and so our legal advocates can get survivors connected with Northwest Immigrant Rights. We have a close connection with um, Northwest Justice Project that can sometimes help with parenting plans or um, other situations due to the domestic violence. Of course, all these resources are very stretched and so not everybody is able to access them. Unfortunately, and as we know, private attorneys are very, very expensive. We're lucky that our legal advocates do have some connections. Um, like, for example, through our legal clinic, there's free legal um, session meetings for somebody for like half an hour or an hour to just let somebody know what their options are or to help them um, with a protection order if that's the route they're going to go or, or, and talk about what's involved in a parenting plan too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with some of the more psychological or emotional abusive people, again, the legal system in itself is just being abused all over again, uh, you know, um, between lawyers who are being paid to do it, right. <laughs> you know, or not having legal experience that knows and sees the situation for what it is. And I think that that can also be challenging too as attorneys, right. not understanding the high conflict situation yes. that they're in. Um, so it, let's just go to there. I, you know, you talked about stretched resources, but they're invaluable. Um, there's a lot of people that need these resources, you know. Um, and so what can people do uh, to support these organizations to make sure that there's these opportunities for, you know, uh, women, family, and even men in some situations to be mm-hmm. able to, you know, safely get out and, um, and rebuild? Mm-hmm. Well, certainly all the 
domestic violence agencies always um, depend on donors to some capacity. We all get certain governmental funding, but also really depend on donations. And I know that New Beginnings has a broad band of donors, some who give $25 a year for many, many years and others who give you know, many thousands of dollars. Um, but not everybody is able to give financially, of course, but it, so it can also just encourage all the local entities, governments and uh, philanthropic agencies to support this cause and to give money. Uh, all, um, some of our local agencies like the Gates Foundation has been very generous um, in giving money for specific projects. And we write a lot of grants with the New Beginnings too and get money through that which is usually very flexible in how we are able to use it, which is very appreciated. Mm -hmm. I think there always needs to be pressure on the cities and the city of Seattle and county and the Washington state to continue to fund programs um, because the need is not going away. And no matter what the economic landscape is going to be after COVID, um, the safety net for survivors of gender-based violence should not decrease in any way, but rather should increase. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's recession-proof. Violence is recession-proof, unfortunately, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't, it, you know, it may change a little bit. It may get worse, but it, it doesn't go away. Um, what do you think is one of the, you know, there's no silver bullet, so I know this isn't a fair question, um, but what do you think is a big component to ending domestic violence in our communities? You know, what do we think that um, can move that needle, you know, more than, more than most maybe? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, you know, prevention, 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 and starting educating at a really young age um, about what healthy relationships look like and the danger of using power and control over anybody in your life. New Beginnings has a prevention educator that does some work in middle schools within Seattle. A lot of the local domestic violence agencies do work with kids or teens or uh, young adults around trying to shift what's acceptable and what's not within a relationship. So a a lot more um, prevention, education, everybody in the community feeling that they have a part, that it's not a private family matter. It's not unique or specific to one particular relationship. It really impacts the whole community. And it is an issue that everybody in the community should feel some buy-in to um, end domestic violence. Mm-hmm. I agree. Absolutely. I agree. So because the impact and the, and the, uh, the, the possibility of a family in particular, um, maybe women with children or even women themselves ending up in poverty as a result of coming out of a situation like this, or as a result of being in a situation like this, which can be a deterrent for them to leave. Um, you know, what is the financial assistance then from an organization like new beginnings look like for, uh, you know, a woman, let's say we'll use a woman as an example that is, um, you know, going to need to rebuild, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. New Beginnings, as well as a lot of other domestic violence agencies in the area, have funding for something called rapid rehousing, which the premise of it is to be able to 
help survivors find apartments out in the community, reintegrate into a new community that they find desirable with the financial support for up to a year and the advocacy support. And during that year, a lot of the advocacy goes toward, is focused on how to help survivors become more financially sufficient, um, independent if possible. You know, we certainly serve survivors who are on public assistance or social security and are not gonna be able to increase their income. But for those who can, we try to help with paying for um, training programs or helping with their next step in their education or help with a job search and then try to help them um, find childcare if they do get a job. So all those practical pieces of being able to move ahead financially in one's life. Yeah, and that's huge. I, I, that actually just kind of gave me goosebumps actually thinking about that as a possibility because I, you know, um, again, from personal experience, leaving one situation, the very first year after I left it, my total income was like $30,000 and it was me and two kids. And it was hard <laughs> to do that. And, um, you know, I, I had some wherewithal to be able to keep myself going and to, you know, to elevate back out of it. But, you know, not everybody can afford to live a year at 30000 and taking care of themselves and two kids and paying for attorneys and, you know, everything else that goes on there. And and again, that can be a real, uh, when, when a woman sits here and thinks and puts out pen to paper and goes, I can't afford, I literally can't afford to leave this situation, which had been on my mind for a few years. Like, I, how do I leave this situation and start all over again and, and have to take that financial hit? And so, you know, to me, that's a huge gateway that you guys have available for somebody to be able to take that possibly off the table and, and, to, make the, and to make a good, safe choice for themselves, knowing that, um, you know, that they're not going to be in financial despair because some of us don't even have family members that can chip in and help, right. right? And our friends might not be able to chip in and help, you know, so what is, there's nothing left for us, you know, except to go live in a car. And I know some women have chosen to do that, that safety first, and that means living in the car. But if you cannot have to do that, that's amazing, like truly amazing to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes people who, do not know a lot about domestic violence, um, make it sound so easy and say, why doesn't she just leave? Um, and why doesn't she go to a shelter? Why doesn't she just find someplace else to live? And first of all, there's, there aren't enough shelters for everybody calling for that particular resource. Sometimes people call, um, survivors call for months and months before they're able to get into a shelter. And also the reality of all of a sudden being in poverty and it, and for some, we serve some survivors who they might've been working, but their abusive partner was watching the children. And so it's a reality that if they leave, um, they might lose their job because they might not be able to find affordable childcare. So there's so many life generated risks um, that survivors have to weigh. It's not this easy decision to leave even when that's what your heart might be telling you what to do. The reality of life um, sometimes makes that very challenging. Yeah, for sure. And, and to point out too that um, some abusers know that yes. and they intentionally cut you off from those resources because it's another way of keeping you there and available to them for doing that. And, um, and, and some people, again, unless you're in it and have lived through it, you don't understand all the little strings attached, you know, mm -hmm. in that relationship that are all ways in which to keep you trapped, you mm -hmm. know, in that situation. Mm -hmm. And they're not easy. Uh, you and know, you, to 
Right. And you mentioned family support and one tactic of domestic violence uh, or abusers is often to isolate the survivor um, and, you know, fracture their relationships with family or friends so that they don't feel that they have anybody to reach out to when they really need it. And that's another reason why 24-hour helplines can be such a good resource. Um, and that is a common factor in domestic violence, that isolation and cutting off of resources, emotional resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and then the financial will go with that as well, too. So great. Huh. Well, not great, but, you know, good, good discussion there. Well, Jenny, I appreciate you taking the time to educate us on this, on in the, the, the uses of these types of services um, and, uh, and helping us, you know, become aware. Uh, again, my intent that I hope, you know, comes out of this is uh, demystifying it a little bit for anybody. Um, you know, I have a listener, you know, viewership of people dealing with trauma. And if there are, you know, any of them are like me, we sometimes end up in these situations. It's not because we chose it. It's not because we ever wanted it, but they can become an inevitability when we have dealt with learning, as you have said, um, we don't know what healthy relationships should look like. We don't know where boundaries should be. And unfortunately there are people out there apt to take advantage of those and we can get ourselves trapped and caught in something like this. And that is one message I'd like to get across too, that it can happen to anybody. It's not because you grew up in a certain way. Um, It's not that there's something about you that is attracting somebody that's abusive. It really literally can happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. Some people just have more support in their lives. So it might be easier to have other options um, and others just don't and need to really depend on the safety network that we can provide. Mm -hmm. Great. And I appreciate that so much. And so again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this. I really do appreciate you and what New Beginnings is doing. I appreciate you. Thank you. Cool. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiqueraconing.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kirkconi, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.